This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, journalist Kathleen McLaughlin discusses her book, Blood Money, the story of life, death, and profit inside America's blood industry. She looks at how and why selling blood plasma has turned into a $20 billion business for the medical industry. She's interviewed by Stat News investigative reporter Olivia Goldhill. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm here today talking with Kathleen McLaughlin, who's written an incredibly important and deeply reported book on the blood industry, uh, which is kind of this almost dystopian seeming world, but it's a huge um, economy and industry here in the United States. Um, and Kathleen, I wondered if um, you could start by telling us a bit about your own personal connection to this industry. Of course. So it's really nice to be here with you. Um, my interest in the blood plasma industry began about 20 years ago when I was diagnosed with a rare autoimmune disease. Um, and the treatment for that illness is a medication that is made from pieces of human blood plasma. So it's called intravenous human immunoglobin or IVIG for short. I think most people who've never had to take it have never heard of it. Maybe it's uh, not a common drug, but it is made from other people's blood plasma. And so for about 20 years off and on, I have been having regular infusions of this medication. And it takes a long time to have these infusions, five or six hours each time. And so I have a lot of time to sit in a chair and wonder where it's coming from and who are these people that are providing the plasma that I depend on in order to maintain a very normal life. So that's kind of where it all began for me. It's a really personal story. Yeah, and that really comes through in the book. It, it, it starts with this story, incredible story of you smuggling other people's human blood into China, uh, which sounds like it was almost routine for you. Uh, why, why were you doing that? Why did you have to do that? Well, shortly after I was diagnosed with this disease, I moved to China to work as a foreign correspondent. And this was a period in China that was just after an AIDS catastrophe that was born within the human blood plasma system. So back in the 1990s, China had tried to create something they called the plasma economy. Um, and there's pretty substantial documentation showing that what China wanted to do was be a leading provider of blood plasma for medications around the world. And the reason they saw themselves as this country that could do this is that they did not have a big HIV AIDS outbreak like a lot of other places in the world. So they created this system in particular in one poor province called Henan province in central China, where they would pay 
farmers for their blood plasma and then use that plasma to make medications. Now, at that time, we didn't know quite as much about how HIV and other viruses were spread within blood. So it was a, it became a very unsafe collection system. People were reusing needles and tubing and other equipment. It wasn't sanitary. And so um, a whole lot of people contracted HIV and AIDS and died because they had sold their plasma. Now, by the time I moved to China in the early 2000s, there were still concerns about the safety of the country's blood supply. And I knew that. I also knew that I was using a drug that was made from human blood. So it was safer and easier for me to smuggle this medication into the country. And it was smuggling because one of the few questions on the Chinese entry customs form in the entire time that I lived there about specific products was, are you bringing human blood or blood products? And I always checked no. Um, I guess it did, you say it sounded routine. And to be honest, it felt routine to me. And the reason was if I, I was never selling it. I wasn't doing it for a personal profit. It was basically my own medication supply. So while it was technically against the law and the rules, um, I didn't ever really feel that troubled about it, I suppose. Um, but doing it, knowing that I needed to do it, really prompted me um, to investigate what had happened in China and the ongoing concerns of the blood system there and the risks for Chinese people who didn't have the privilege that I did to get medications from other countries. And you, you know, you said yourself how useful this plasma is, I mean, essential for you and your condition, but I just think it's important to establish what is this used for? You know, what is the medicine and how important is it to people with, with various diseases? Of course. So I, maybe I should step back and, and just explain plasma. So plasma is the protein component of blood. And when you donate or sell plasma, they separate your blood into parts, keep the protein part, which is kind of this yellowish watery substance, and then they put the rest of the blood back into your veins. Um, the plasma can be made into many different kinds of medication. The predominant medication it's made into is human immunoglobin, which is used to treat a lot of different illnesses. So people with primary immune deficiency, people with my illness, people with something called Guillain-Barre syndrome. Um, there are a number of autoimmune conditions where this medication is used. There is a pretty serious childhood illness that's quite deadly where this medication is used. Plasma is also used to make things like albumin, which is a very common drug used in surgery. It's also used for drugs that hemophiliacs rely upon. So it's made into medications that are both essential and quite common. Um, it is made into medications, U.S. plasma is made into medications that then go around the world. And you were talking about what you saw in China and obviously what happened with AIDS was, I mean, deadly. But it sounds like there were also quite extreme economic consequences, especially for the province where it was so common for people to donate plasma. What did you see there? 
Right. So it was quite interesting. I I was in China a decade after the crisis had hit and went back there many times to do reporting in the years after. And in that period, the early 2000s through the early 2010s, China was booming. And in particular, rural areas were really picking up and booming. You know, there was factory work, there was new development, there were entire new cities being built in the parts of Hunan province where the blood plasma economy had gone wrong and there had been this devastating AIDS outbreak, it was the cities and the villages and the towns were much poorer. The economic development didn't hit there the same way it did in other parts of rural China. There was still an incredible amount of stigma around these places, I would say. There was still um, a lot of government intervention in covering up the epidemic. And so people weren't so free to come and go and do the things that they might have been able to do in other parts of China. Not to mention there was a there was a massive death toll. I mean, we still don't know how many people in China died from this outbreak that was created by the plasma economy. Um, the best estimate that I have seen, or I should say one of the most informed estimates that I have seen is around a million people. Um, we don't know though. We just have no idea how many people were infected and how many people died. I interviewed some some people who had survived the AIDS outbreak in Hunan province. Um, there was one man I met in particular who told me that 25% of the people in his village died. They had all been selling plasma to earn extra income and everyone started getting sick all of a sudden. At that time, there was very little education in China regarding AIDS. Um, it was a different social situation than there was in the United States regarding education and awareness. And so a lot of the people he told me, got sick and died without ever knowing what had killed them. So there was this, the remaining stigma around it, even 10 and 20 years later, I think still held these places back and has never quite gone away. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, just a horrendous tragedy and so many people. Um, and you, you said in your book that early on, I mean, you were relying on, on U.S. plasma even when you were living in China, and you kind of assumed that the U.S. had a better system than what you saw in China. When did you start to maybe reconsider that? That's a good question. I have to think about it. So I definitely fell into the really easy trap of believing in American exceptionalism. I was writing about the plasma economy in China on a regular basis. I was meeting people who had been involved, who had exposed it. I was learning all sorts of things about it. And I thought, oh, China is the only country in the world that would ever create something called the plasma economy. It's so dystopian sounding. It's so odd. Um, and I began kind of thinking about what was going on in the U.S. I knew about these plasma centers. I had some friends who had sold plasma. I knew some people who lived near plasma centers. I mean, I was aware of their existence, but I didn't really understand how big the plasma economy was in the United States until I moved home in about 2016. And 
I wanted to interview the woman who had blown the whistle on the catastrophe in China. Her name was Wang Shuping. She had fled China and was living in exile in Salt Lake City working as a medical researcher. She was working on liver cancer researcher. So Wang Shuping was quite interesting. She worked at the government-run plasma centers in Hunan province when the outbreak was happening. She was in charge of monitoring the health of donors. And she noticed an uptick in donors of hepatitis C, which is a bloodborne illness. And she knew that hepatitis C and HIV often traveled together. So she was very concerned. She began testing the donors for HIV and she found that there was HIV within the system and she knew it was going to be a catastrophe. So she alerted her superiors, she alerted up the chain in the central government in Beijing and she was basically silenced and she lost her job. She lost her career. She tried to keep going in China as a researcher, but she was really pushed aside. So she ended up applying for a bunch of jobs in the US very quietly and eventually found herself pretty happily settled in Salt Lake City. So I went to meet with her there and she was she was a very interesting person. She was a little tiny woman. She had the biggest smile. She was really happy. Um, and I had met a lot of dissidents from China who who weren't quite as her English name was Sunshine, and that completely captured her. But I had met a lot of dissidents from China who probably wouldn't be called Sunshine. They'd been through a lot. She had been through a lot, but she had this incredible attitude about it. By the time I met her. She was really surprised because it was 25 years after the fact. She was really surprised that anyone was still interested in what had happened back in China. So I spent a few days with her in Salt Lake. We really hit it off. We talked about, you know, we did a lot of interviews. We talked about kind of everything. And then toward the end of my visit with her, she said, I want to show you something. And I thought, I, you know, who knows what this could be? She's a very interesting woman. And she drove me to a strip mall in downtown Salt Lake, um, right to a plasma center. And she said, we need to go in and find out what's happening because this reminds me of what I saw back in China. I don't trust it. So we went into the plasma center and she asked a bunch of questions about how they operated, their cleanliness standards, how they ensured the health of the donors. And we left and I said, what did you think? And she said, it's too fast. They are open seven days a week. This is Salt Lake. It's a religious town. You know, Salt Lake is still pretty heavily Mormon. Um, and these plasma centers were operating at the same speed that she had seen back in China. And so I said to her, do you think there's any risk of viral contamination? And she said, no, but there's something else here that doesn't seem right. It's it's too much. And so that really, for me, kicked off the understanding of how big and how embedded in our society this industry has become. And from there, I kind of launched into trying to figure out who was donating plasma, who needed the money, why were these centers increasing in number, um, and what and what does it all mean? Unfortunately, Wang Xuping passed away before this book was published. She died right before the pandemic, but it kind of gave me a little more um, fortitude to carry on with the project, I guess. Yeah, I think it's so incredible that it was this whistleblower from China who first said to you something 
isn't right here. It's having seen the worst of it in China to say that we need to look at what's happening here in the United States. Um, and you, I mean, you wrote in your book, I think that uh, there's the industry in 2021, American blood products were more than worth more than $24 billion in worldwide sales, which is huge. Um, can, you, can you put that in, in context? Just how significant of an industry is this? Well, I mean, the, the most common thing that people like to say is it's a bigger export for the United States than soybeans. So if you think about, you know, we're, we're a farm exporter, we export farm crops, we export more blood plasma than certain popular farm crops. It's a huge industry. It's a huge export. Um, I had a conversation a couple of months ago with someone who was asking me about the kind of global connectedness of this industry. And they said, is there a country, a developing country somewhere in the world that kind of provides all of the world's plasma? Is there a country somewhere where you can really see, you know, this is the place where we're getting all the plasma? And I said, yes, it's the United States. I mean, we are the country that has a big enough population and enough of that population who is living on the economic margins that we have become a primary source country for the rest of the world's blood plasma. And I mean, given how big it is, I mean, it's just truly enormous, as you say, bigger than soybeans. Um, it's striking that it's not talked about more, that it seems in some ways and in, in some cities in the U.S. to almost be hidden and overlooked. And, you know, there hasn't been that much attention on it, certainly before your book. Why, why do you think it is that this industry can both be so large and yet somewhat hidden? Yeah, I've thought about that a lot. Um, I think that it is primarily, you know, the United States is a country that likes to pretend we don't have a class system. And I, I think this is a prime example of something that is deeply rooted in socioeconomics and class. And if you know, you know, and if you don't know, you don't know. So if you are of a certain socioeconomic class or you have friends who are, it's very likely that you know people who have sold plasma. If you grew up upper middle class or wealthy and you live in a wealthier area, it's very likely you don't know anyone who's done it and you assume that it's only the poorest of the poor. And I think that as a society, we're just not very good at talking about class. We, as I said, we pretend it doesn't exist. We pretend it doesn't define every component of our lives in this country. And so I think that selling plasma, while it is incredibly common and it's become an incredibly important source of income for a lot of people, we don't see it as, I guess we don't see people who need to do it for that reason. And at the same time, people who do need to sell plasma in order to get a higher income stream, um, I think that they have been discouraged from talking about it openly because a lot of people think of it as, oh, it's gross or, you know, it's icky, blood is icky, that's gross. The piece of that that's, that's really fascinating to me is if you compare selling plasma to donating blood. So 
in this country, and I would say around the world, it's valorized to donate blood. You are a great person if you are a regular blood donor. You are almost heroic if you are someone who donates blood on a regular basis. You don't get paid. You are not allowed to get paid for whole blood donation in the United States and most other countries. If you sell plasma, which plasma is just as essential to making medications for people like me, um, it is seen as some sometimes kind of a joke. I've heard people joke about it. I have heard people be dismissive of it. A lot of people I have spoken with who've never had to do it think that it's no big deal and think that, you know, oh, why should I care about that? So there's this real divide. It's been really interesting to me since I started working on this book, the divide between who knows about this and who doesn't. And the way that people have opened up to me kind of in the aftermath about difficult periods in their life where they needed to sell plasma to get by. And when that happens, I ask people, like, does your family know about this? And they usually say, no, I didn't want to worry them. I didn't want to concern them. So I think there's a, it, it's both sides. There is the piece um, of people who don't know about it. So they're not talking about it because they're economically more comfortable and don't know that this is a big issue. And then on the other side, the people who are selling plasma are not made to be comfortable in discussing it openly. So it's just kind of this perfect storm that's created a massive thing that no one's really talking about. Mm. And you said you, you set out to find out who it is who's selling plasma and why. And you mentioned just now that it seems, you know, like a top up when people fall on hard times. I mean, what did you discover? Sounds like this is rarely a, a kind of the full salary. It's more an additional income stream. Um, and what else did you find out about the motivations of people who, who sell their plasma? That's right. So the only people I went to, I went to three different places for the book that are quite different demographically and um, different regions of the country. I went to Flint, Michigan, Rexburg, Idaho, and the U.S.-Mexico border near El Paso, Texas. I would say that of those places, the one place where and where people really do depend on selling plasma as their primary income stream is the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, so at one point before the pandemic, there were 10,000 Mexican citizens a week crossing over into the U.S. to sell plasma. Now, the reason for that is Mexico, like most every other country in the world, bans the payment or bans paying people to donate plasma. And so the attraction is for Mexican citizens to come into the U.S. to earn money by doing that. That was really the only group that I encountered where it could have been a primary income stream. And that's just because wages are so much lower in Mexico than in the United States. Um, in Rexburg, Idaho, which is a Mormon university town, I found one of the primary groups um, of people in the United States who sells plasma, and that's college students. I mean, this is 
an industry that markets to and targets college students like maybe nobody else. So if you are in a city with a large university, particularly a large public university, where a lot of the students aren't wealthy, you will find at least one plasma center. Rexburg, which is a tiny little town, has two. Rexburg has maybe 30, 35,000 people, and they have two plasma centers. And it is just incredibly common. And this is, you know, University education is expensive and we don't give college students much help. And I think back to when I was in school and working full time, it's really difficult to pay attention to your education and work at the same time. And so I think for a lot of students, this is seen as something that is economically beneficial, you can make a good chunk of money and you don't have to have a job that eats into your studies as much as much as you might otherwise need to. Now in Flint, um, there are a lot of people down on their luck who are selling plasma, I would say more so than the other towns that I went to. But I also met several people who are just doing it to supplement their incomes. You know, Flint was really, if you talk to people in Flint, they will tell you that that city was the birthplace of the American middle class. Um, And everything that's happened to Flint in the last 30 years has sunk the middle class. And so these are people who are working full time and in jobs that would maybe used to 30 years ago would have provided a decent income and a decent life for a family, but it's not enough anymore. So wages haven't kept pace with inflation and other costs. So people are doing this, like you said, to really top up their income. I mean, I've met people who have, who sell plasma to afford to take vacations. I met a young woman who had sold plasma to go to a friend's wedding. I've also met people who sell plasma to buy groceries. It really runs the gamut. But I would say the primary, some of the primary targets are Mexican citizens who live on the borderlands, um, college students, and then people who live in economically deprived parts of the United States. The Rust Belt is full of plasma centers. And you interviewed so many people for this book. Was there a particular story that kind of stood out to you or, or, or meant a lot and kind of encapsulated some of the problems that you've been exploring? There were so many. Uh, the one person I really think of a lot is a woman I met via Zoom because this was during the pandemic mm-hmm. in Texas who had gotten into a lot of legal trouble when she was young and it was mostly traffic tickets and they just built up and built up and built up. And she finally found herself in a situation where she had to pay off exorbitant court fees and fines or she was going to end up in jail. So she started selling plasma to pay off her court fees. And it was really her story for me really illustrated how people can get trapped in poverty in this country and punished for not being wealthy, um, rather than assisted. You know, she really felt like she had no options other than selling plasma to pay these fees off. And she was a single mom. She had 
enrolled in college. She was really focused on her studies. She was really trying to improve her life. And it was really, really difficult for her just to earn this money she needed to pay off a few thousand dollars in court fees and fines. And something she said to me just sticks with me all the time. She said it twice. She said, I'd sell a kidney if I could. And I think there are a lot of people in that situation in the United States who would be willing to sell pieces of themselves in order to get out of a bad situation or to improve their lives or to improve life for their children. So she, you know, was it hers was a sad story. I don't think it will be a sad outcome. She's pretty driven to fixing things and making things better, but, um, just hearing how difficult it was for her to dig out of this hole was was really um, powerful for me. And and you said earlier, you know, some people think that selling plasma is no big deal, and that you know, at least it's easier than selling a kidney. But um, what I mean, what is the experience of selling plasma like, and, and what impact does it have on the people who are going through it? So. <clears throat> I would say out of all the people that I interviewed, there there was almost no one who said they didn't notice anything. There are a few people who were like, yeah, I, I didn't notice anything at all. The most common thing I heard from people is fatigue. And so a lot of people get extremely tired after donating plasma. So you imagine they're pulling the protein out of your body. Imagine what that might make you feel like. I haven't donated plasma before. I'm banned from doing so because I am recipient of human blood products. So I don't know the feeling myself, but the way it's described to me is extreme fatigue. One person I interviewed described it as bone crushing fatigue. Um, One woman I interviewed told me she had to go to sleep for the rest of the day after she donated plasma. There's also, I spoke with people who would feel sick to their stomach, Um, headaches, lightheaded, dizzy. I think about one young woman I met outside of a plasma center in Rexburg, Idaho. I believe she was 19. She was a college student, tiny little young woman. And uh, she was so chilled by the process. It can be very cold because they're re-injecting cold fluid into your body at the end. She was so chilled that her teeth were chattering the entire time that we were talking. The other part about it that you hear a lot from donors are the scars. So anyone who does this long-term ends up with these divots in the crook of their elbow. Um, and you know, you know the, the place on your body where you might have blood drawn, the really easy, juicy vein, that's normally where the plasma center will stick the needle to extract plasma. If you're having that done twice a week, it's going to leave scars. I had dinner a couple of weeks ago with some friends who are in their early 30s And I didn't know they had sold plasma, but they were telling me that they did it when they were first starting out in their careers. And they did it for about three years, twice a week. And they both still have the scars. And this is six or seven years later. So the scars are a big thing for people. I think that um, a lot of people are concerned about the stigma that comes with the scars. I've, I've had plasma donors tell me that they worry, even though the scars look nothing like intravenous drug use scars, they worry that if someone sees them, they'll think they're a drug user. Mm-hmm. So that is a part of it. I will say, so there's there's been a few long-term studies about the potential health impacts 
Um, there's one that indicates people's protein lowers, pardon me, protein levels are lower if they donate long-term. There was a long-term study in China, plasma donors that indicated fatigue led a lot of people to stop working early. So it really had that impact. I will say anecdotally, the people who donate long-term, their health problems or their fatigue seems to go away when they stop. So it doesn't seem to be something that lingers in people for years on end. It seems to be symptomatic of when you're doing it. And also, I would say the the physical effects do seem to tend to depend on how often people donate. So the people that go twice a week are the ones that I've heard the most from about uncomfortable side effects or fatigue or headache or things like that. I want to read um, a bit from your book where you talk about, um, uh, you know, the people who donate plasma and, you know, they're expected to have a good diet so that they're healthy. And you write, in thinking about the nutrition aspect, I find it hard not to make brutal comparisons through the looking glass of the plasma economy. Human beings treated as livestock, kept alive and fed just barely well enough to ensure the blood flow is coming. The industry's success, at least as measured in the number of clinics and their humming busyness, seems an insult on top of the decades of injury that Flint has already suffered. And I think that idea of human beings as livestock is really devastating. But what what did you see that made you think that and make do you draw that comparison? Oh, it was I, I went inside a plasma center in Flint, Michigan and had a tour. And it's so mechanized and structured and sanitary. It just feels like science fiction. There's rows and rows of chairs and people are seated in the chairs, reclining, with, strapped up to these machines. Um, that's part of it. The other part of it was talking to donors about what they have to eat in order to feel okay when they're doing this. So what's really interesting to me is, again, I'll go back to the blood donation comparison. If you donate blood, they'll at least give you a cookie and some juice to make you feel better at the end. If you donate plasma, they won't give you anything unless you're on the verge of passing out. So the profit margin is so much more important, I think, than tiny little things that would make people feel better. Um, people are instructed when they donate frequently. The companies will tell them a proper diet and to hydrate appropriately, but they're not being given subsidies to pay for these things. You know, they're told to eat high protein diets. Like that's well known among plasma donors, but they're not being compensated to to pay for high protein diets. So it is this, it is this almost dystopian thing of expecting people to eat certain things and then extracting parts of their body that made me feel very much like it was um, agricultural in nature. And I did have a couple of plasma donors say this to me that they felt like cows being milked. Um, which sounds like a very grotesque comparison, but when you see it, it's hard to unsee it. Mm. And you spoke to one person outside of a plasma center where, you know, if you donated incredibly regularly um, several times a month, 
you could be paid $1,200 a month, I think, for several donations. And, you know, you told them that when you look at your um, bills from your the medicine you receive, a dose of plasma costs your insurance company $12,000. What makes up that difference? It's a very good question. I mean, these are private companies that aren't transparent about what's happening in the middle. So what I can tell you is this. First of all, um, the price of my specific drug has gone up this year. It's now $13,000 a dose. It seems to go up every year. Um, So it's gone up since I wrote the book, which is kind of staggering. What happens in the middle, though, and I can tell you for my specific drug, my drug is made from the immune particles of the plasma of potentially thousands of different people. So it's not a one-to-one equation. It's not paying someone $40 for something and then me paying, you know, my insurance company paying $13,000 at the end. There is a lot that goes on in the middle. There is treating the plasma um, with heat, pasteurizing it so it doesn't carry the risk of infection. There is making it into this mix of this proprietary mix of chemicals that then works as my drug. Uh, But we don't really know. I mean, there's profit in the middle. A lot of it is profit. There certainly is um, technology. And I would say, you know, years of research have gone into making these drugs. These are pretty old drugs, though. These are not revolutionary drugs. IVIG has been around for a long time. So this is not a cutting edge medication. It's just made from the pieces of a lot of different people. Um, and and there is a lot of profit in between. As you noted at the beginning of this, we're talking about more than $20 billion in profit. Um, and I believe that was 2020, and the number has gone way up since. And and who is profiting? Is it the, the predominantly the plasma centers? You know, there are companies, I think, all over the world buying this plasma. You know, who is profiting? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a lot, it's like a lot of things in our healthcare system, which is um, a lot of the profits come out in the middle. So the plasma industry is very interesting in the U.S. The U.S. is the big plasma source provider, but it's very much a global industry. So a lot of these companies are multinationals that own the system from beginning to end. So for example, my particular drug is made by a company called Griffles. Um, That company is based in Spain. You can sell plasma at a Griffles Plasma Collection Center in the United States. But Griffles products are sold all around the world. So they and CSL is an Australian company that has a similar um, system, I would say. So a lot of these companies own the plasma collection centers. They also own the places where the plasma is made into medication, they also make the medication and sell it back to patients. So they kind of own it from beginning to end. Um, there's a, There are a lot of other companies that make medication from plasma that don't own the collection centers, but the three biggest do. And it's what's interesting to me is two of the three biggest are not based in the United States. So the United States is really a source provider for these companies, which then turns it into medication and sells them around the world. And a lot of countries, I mean, you mentioned, especially in Europe, it's you can't sell plasma. But those countries, it sounds like it's not like they have a different solution. They're just depending on the supply from the United States where it is sold. Is that right? 
That's right. And I think that, again, we were talking earlier about how this is kind of a hidden industry, certainly hidden to people in other countries. So when I wrote the book, there were five countries that allow people to be paid for plasma donations. The United States is far and away the largest of the five. So I've had conversations when I was first working on this book, I had a conversation, uh, well, several conversations with people in Switzerland, because I happened to be there doing some work and I was telling them about it and they were just appalled <laughs> that people in the United States could get paid for plasma donation. You know, you go to a country that has universal health care and some other guarantees of basic living allowances, they're really horrified that Americans have to do this. But at the same time, countries like that are dependent on Americans because a voluntary plasma donation system does not provide enough plasma to meet the global demand. And you said as well, I mean, you've mentioned already what happened when you visited El Paso. Um, I mean, as you said, I think 10,000 Mexicans prior to the pandemic would go across the border to sell their plasma every week. Um, just how important is that supply, is Mexican blood supply to the US plasma economy? It's a really interesting situation there. I was not, I knew that the Mexican component of the plasma industry was big, but I did not know just how big it was until I started working on this book. And since the pandemic, there has actually been a major lawsuit that has exposed the importance of it. Um, in basically when the pandemic hit, the land border between the United States and Mexico was closed. And that cut off these thousands of people who had crossed into the US and depended on selling plasma as an income stream. Um, in the interim, when the border reopened, one branch of the US government reclassified Mexican citizens selling plasma as labor. The plasma companies then sued to overturn that classification saying it wasn't labor, but in their court filings, they detailed how important this piece of the plasma economy is. So one of the documents calls the Mexican border plasma stations the most productive in the United States, meaning they are gathering more plasma than any other collection across the country. Um, at this point, there has been a new ruling that has re-allowed Mexican citizens to cross into the U.S. to sell plasma. So it's gone back and forth a couple of times since the lawsuits started. I actually spoke with, since the latest decision in the lawsuit, I spoke with a couple of the donors who are in my book from Mexico, and they have returned back to the U.S. to start selling plasma again because the money is just so good. Um, one of the people I spoke with recently, a couple of weeks ago, was an English teacher in Juarez. And he just said, you know, it's the it's the best way to make some decent money on top of my the income that I already get. So it's been it's really interesting to watch. You know, I think that the plasma companies are probably um, terrified of it being classified as labor because then that would have implications for everyone who sells plasma in this country. But as it stands right now, the legal situation is that Mexican citizens can return to the U.S. and they have started returning to sell plasma on day visas. 
It's really striking in your book just how much this industry thrives on inequality. You're talking about the border where, you know, Mexican salaries are so much lower than those in the US. You know, people who are struggling to get by. I mean, do you think that's kind of a necessary feature of this industry? Um, You know, and if so, why? Why does it so depend on that inequality? Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think I have begun to see this industry really as a symptom of the problems with the United States economic system. So it's almost like, and you'll often see these businesses together, it's almost like a dollar store or a pawn shop or a a predatory furniture business. These kinds of businesses that collect in communities where people have been economically marginalized. As far as by necessity, I do think that we can do better. I don't think that we have to have these predatory industries. I don't think that we need to have all of that profit motivation and margin in the middle. Um, It's been really interesting to me. One aspect since writing this book is I think that people who sell plasma are also afraid of talking about it because it could jeopardize an important income stream stream for them. But in my opinion, what we should be talking about, there's no rolling back this industry. We're not going to be able to say, oh, we can't pay people for plasma anymore. It's just, it's too embedded in everything right now. I actually think we should be talking about paying people more and making it more of a fair system, you know, unless we're actually going to attack things like income inequality, universal health care, the insanely high cost of college education, which we should be talking about all of those things. There are some steps we could take on the plasma selling end to make it better for people. So it has become, you asked if it's by necessity, and I think that it has been designed that way. I don't think it necessarily has to be that way. I do think we can make things better. And I mean, as it stands at the moment, um, one thing I found kind of just a detail that was surprising is how people are incentivized to give repeat donations. Why would it be set up that way? Um, What's the thinking behind it that don't just come in once you get paid more and more if you go regularly? I mean, I think it's like anything else we do to economically marginalized people in this country. We I'm not to use too heavy handed of a metaphor, but we bleed them dry. You know, we take from people in service of profits as much as we possibly can. So the way plasma extraction is set up, if you're a regular donor, you get paid more for the second donation in a week. You will often get an end of the month bonus. You will get friend referrals. You'll get all sorts of bonus points for donating a certain number of times in a month. And that's just to feed this insatiable demand. I think the companies have realized that one of the most valuable things for them is to get repeat donors, tie them into the system and keep them coming back again and again and again. And one of the ways to do that is the way that we like to do things in the U.S., which is to gamify things, right? So you talk to people who are plasma donors, they will have a whole system worked out. They'll have an app on their phone, which will tell them their points and their bonuses and their referrals, how much extra they can make in a month by donating X number of times. So it's really 
a thing where plasma companies want people to come as often as possible because there doesn't seem to be an end to the demand for this substance. And you mentioned that um, the effects seem to be more severe on people who do it frequently and seem to ease after the selling the plasma stops. But do we know with certainty about long-term effects? And, you know, did the people you were speaking to, it did sound like that was a concern for some people, right? That we just don't know what the impact for sure will be. I think a lot of donors are very concerned. I think that a lot of long-term donors are not comfortable with what they have been told. I think particularly a lot of people sell plasma when they're young and and think about it 10 years later and think, oh my God, what did I do? I will say, I don't think there have been enough long-term studies. I think that there should be more investment in studying the potential health impacts long-term, not just immediate risk. I think there should be serious investment from plasma companies in long-term study on what happens to long-term donors. If this is something that they want to continue doing and believe is safe, then we should be able to back that up with science. So it is, I don't really know what to say when, when plasma donors ask me, do you think there's a risk? Do you think that I damage my health? At this point, there's no evidence that there is or that they did, but I think there should be more robust scientific study to answer that question. And we don't have that right now. And I think that responsibility really falls on the plasma companies. At the same time, this is one of those issues that is relegated to people who experience poverty or um, who are in the working class or the poor and working class. And those are people that science also often ignores. And I think that is a piece of what has happened here is their their problems are maybe not quite as interesting as wealthy people. And you talk a lot about the, the stigma and the fear and the hesitancy. And it sounds like the fact that you benefit from this plasma and you have that personal connection made it easier for people to talk to you is 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 that something that you felt absolutely so my kind of method for talking to people in this book is i would stand outside of a plasma center and wait for people to come out and you can always tell who's been donating because they'll have an elastic usually a colored elastic bandage around their arm kind of like a war wound And so I would just grab people like a survey taker and say, hey, did you donate plasma? Can I talk to you about it? Usually the second or third thing that I would tell them is that I'm a beneficiary, that I am a a long-term user of plasma drugs. I depend on them. And it was kind of interesting because I think several of the people that I met it was almost like they, they've been told, you know, as long as they've been donating plasma, this saves lives, this helps people, blah, blah, blah. But they had never met a recipient. And so I think it was gratifying for a lot of people to actually meet someone and know that this is going to a real person. Um, one of the interesting aspects of this reporting is we have we make it difficult for people who aren't wealthy to be altruistic in our society, I think. And selling plasma is a way that you can 
make money, but you're also giving back to society. And it's really promoted as something that's beneficial to society. But I think a lot of people who sell plasma don't often meet the beneficiaries like me. So yeah, it definitely broke the ice. I didn't feel like I could do this reporting without telling people why I was doing. That would have felt quite dishonest to me. And so it was important for me to tell people, hey, I you know, might have used some of your plasma. Thank you. And it definitely did break the ice. And I think that it gave us a connection just beyond the regular reporter source thing, which can be super uncomfortable. So yeah, it was was interesting to see people's reactions to it. I think I kind of, some people, I think maybe they thought that I wasn't telling the truth at first because it was such a weird thing to ask. I mean, you spoke just then about being altruistic. And I think there's also themes in this book, though, of when that altruism becomes kind of forced or when it's you have to do it to survive, it starts to feel, I mean, beyond uncomfortable at times, unethical. You know, there was the incident of the judge who who would make people sell their plasma, right? And I am some incidents going back in prison as well. I mean, what what did you think about those examples and I guess how they relate to the broader system? Yeah, I think that there is a history of unethical incidents and behavior that go along with this entire industry. I mean, you're essentially coercing people to give up a piece of themselves in exchange for money. There really isn't another way to look at it. And so I think the ethics are shaky at all times. I think also people now have agency. And I think that people don't want to be treated as victims in this situation. So it's very tricky to figure out the ethics of all of it. Um, You know, I do wonder how many people would donate plasma if it didn't pay. I don't think that we would, I don't think we'd have a plasma economy. I don't think we would be this massive source provider of the world's plasma. I think it would look a little bit more like our blood system, which is something that is a a domestic supply rather than a global industry. So yeah, the ethics of it are all very tricky. I don't want to patronize people and say that they don't have agency or the ability to decide to do this. At the same time, I would say every single person I talked to, and I interviewed more than 100 plasma donors, money was the primary reason they were doing it. I mean, there were a lot of people who saw benefit to it as well. Altruism, um, giving back to society, they felt good about it. But the number one reason they were doing it was money. Um, And I don't know how you can have an ethical system like this when the primary motivation for most people is financial. In addition to interviewing more than 100 people, you also at one point went undercover. Um, <laughs> why Why did you do that? And, and, and what? tell us what you saw when you did. Sure. So I, I think I mentioned before, I can't donate plasma. And I, I just wanted to see the inside of a plasma center. Obviously, they're not going to let strangers come in and walk around for kicks. Um, And so the next best thing that I could come up with was to pretend to have a job interview. So I showed up at a plasma center in Michigan for a job interview and spent about an hour and a half there getting a tour and a rundown of the operations and explanation of how the business works. Um, Never lied 
about who I was. I didn't lie about my experience. I kind of just omitted a lot of things. So what was interesting to me is I felt like in the job interview itself, the primary concern for the managers was customer service. They really wanted to hire people who knew how to keep donors happy, especially when bad things happened and keep them coming back. And by bad things, I mean missed needle sticks are a, are a major issue. So if a donor comes in, a technician misses their vein, they can leave a bruise that will then prevent the donor from donating for weeks, which interferes with their financial situation. So customer service was a big thing. Um, it was, again, this is kind of, it felt like science fiction to me. You go into the back room, it looks like a medical clinic, but it's rows and rows and rows of recliner chairs and people stretched out into them with a needle in their arm that's connected to a centrifuge that's drawing out their blood, keeping the plasma and returning the rest of the cells. It's very, it was very well organized. It was very clean. The people who worked there were great. It was extremely unsettling, almost because it was so mechanized. I don't really know how else to explain it, but it just felt felt like I was watching a science fiction movie. And then there was this, of course, overwhelming smell of blood, which is like copper in the air. And anyone who's donated plasma knows all about this, um, but it's very clinical, I would say. And I didn't, I don't know what I expected when I went in. I didn't really have expectations, to be honest. I just wanted to learn about it. Um, but it was much more sanitized than I had expected, which was which was troubling in its own way. It just felt um, removed from normal life, I guess. We just have um, a few more minutes left, so I'm going to ask a couple more questions. But um, I mean, first of all, you talked about, you know, the things that uh, would make this better, maybe higher salaries, um, snacks. I mean, do you, ha do you think that will happen? And what would it take to get there? It sounds like the kind of thing where people would have to unionize. And is that, I mean, feasible? I mean, I think there is power in, in collective action, right? So if there are potentially millions of people in the United States who sell their plasma every year, they have a lot of power if they come together and demand better. So I think that people, there is a researcher at the University of Michigan, Luke Schaefer, who has discussed a plasma minimum wage. I think that sounds like a brilliant idea. Transparency around what people get paid. Um, less gamification of the system. So why do you get paid more for a second donation in a week than the first? What What is the actual logic behind that? Unless this is a fee for services, which it is. I think that really what needs to happen is a bigger public discussion about all of this. You know, what do we want from this system? Are we okay with 19 year old 19 year olds selling their plasma twice a week for the four years that they're in college? Would it be better if we funded university education and forgave student debt instead? You know, I think there are all these connected societal questions that we need to ask. But first and foremost, the two things I think need to be looked at are the payment and also the frequency of donations. Someone who is healthy and meets all the qualifications can sell plasma 104 times a year. That seems like an awful lot to me. Um, mm. And I think the payments should be higher. 
And um, just last minute, uh, one last quick question, then we're going to wrap up. But have you changed your opinion on uh, the U.S. blood industry, you know, being so much better than what you saw in China, having seen both, <laughs> you know, now what would you, how would you compare them? I mean, I, I was just fascinated and intrigued and appalled when I lived in China by this idea of something called the plasma economy. And then I came back to the U.S. and discovered we created it while yeah. nobody was really paying all that much attention. So yeah, I, I have made the classic American mistake and, and I'm, humble about it now. Well, thank you so much for talking today. And thank you for your book, uh, Blood Money. It's a really important read. Um, and thank, you, so thank you for all your work on this subject. Thank you. This was wonderful. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. 